starting the Gospel of John, and what we're going to do is we're going to do something kind of new periodically, about every four to six weeks as we go through the book of John. And what that is is, uh, lack of a better name, we're just going to call it apologetics moments. And uh, when there's texts, uh, parts of the Scripture in John that kind of have value to them in terms of the history of ideas or theology or even archaeology, uh, we're going to bring up um, Rick to kind of... Uh, expound on that a little bit from an apologetic standpoint. Apologetics is simply like Christian philosophy. It's like the, the kind of reasoning and looking at it so that we can uh, trust it and we know that it's reliable and kind of giving uh, evidences that way and, and putting it through that kind of a test. And the funny thing is one of the best passages for an apologetics moment is the first one that we start with, John 1.1, 1, 1, right out of the gate. And so um, if you would welcome with me, Rick Gerhardt's going to come up. And he's just going to take some time to get us started this morning. So, Rick. I'd encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the beginning of John 1. And, uh, and I think Kristen will get it up here on the board, and we'll read it together. I don't know about the rest of you, but I don't really pay attention to people like Brandon who come up here and just stand on the stage. I... I think the authority vested in the sacred bar stool here is, is what, what makes me start paying attention to what's being said. Um, so if, if you're in John 1, beginning with verse 1, and I'm, I'm actually going to only read the first three verses for right now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made, and nothing was made and without him nothing was made that has been made. So here in the introduction to his gospel, the gospel writer, first of all, reaffirms the claim that's made at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. And that ancient claim is that God is this eternally existent being who transcends the universe which he created. Okay? And the gospel writer is here reaffirming that. Now, this idea, this claim, has uh, suffered through some hard times, both philosophically and especially scientifically. But in our generation, it has received stunning confirmation from the latest discoveries in cosmology and astrophysics. Okay? So that's the first point of, of this apologetics moment. Uh, belief in a transcendent God as the cause of the universe in which we live uh, is more solidly evidenced by, is more solidly supported by scientific evidence now than, than it ever has been, okay? But the gospel writer doesn't merely reaffirm that ancient claim. He, he adds to it. And in particular, what we have here is the claim that this central character of the whole gospel of John, this protagonist of John's gospel, Jesus of Nazareth, is himself that transcendent God. In fact, what we have here in the opening three verses is not just a reaffirmation of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, but it also uh, has three doctrines that are central to Christianity, at least introduced here. The doctrine of incarnation, the idea that this transcendent God became human flesh, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, that this God exists as one in essence, but three in persons, is at least introduced here. 
Um, the gospel writer doesn't declare here in the opening verses uh, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but that's because his purpose here is just to identify who Jesus is, not to, to fully uh, explain the Trinity. And then the third Christological doctrine laid out here is the deity or godhood of this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there have always been people who would reject all four of these doctrines, including the existence of God and, and uh, creation ex nihilo. But within the last hundred years or so, there's been a, a real proliferation of various groups, some of whom will come to the door of your home, uh, who would affirm the existence of God and, and creation out of nothing, would deny all three of these Christological doctrines, and yet hold to uh, the authority of the New Testament and, and of the Gospel of John. Okay. Um, now, we can find these doctrines of, of Trinity and the deity of Christ, the Incarnation, throughout the New Testament and, and even foreshadowed in the Old Testament. But people from across this spectrum of Trinitarian, anti-Trinitarianism agree that what, in the passage before us this morning, we have a, a, critical, uh, a critical passage. In other words, we Christians find in this passage strong support for these Christological doctrines. And those who would deny them and yet still affirm the authority of the New Testament recognize the need to somehow explain away the Christian understanding of John 1.1. Okay? Now there's only really two options available. One is to appeal to an error in the transmission or the copying of John 1.1. And this, this argument is really a non-starter. Um, we don't have the original of the Gospel of John or any New Testament work, but what we do have is a wealth of ancient copies. Um, some of them, some of the copies of, of the Gospel of John dating back to within 100 years of Christ's death. And whereas among the vast number of ancient copies of the New Testament, there are places where there are slight discrepancies, what your study Bible would call variants and, and kind of points you to in the margins of your study Bible, there are no such variants with regard to John 1.1. In other words, there's no debate about what the original Greek of John 1.1 says. Okay? So the only recourse for these, those who would deny uh, these Christological doctrines is to claim that Christians have misunderstood or mistranslated John 1.1. Okay? And, and a common alternate translation would be that it shouldn't say the word was God, capital G God. Instead, it should say the word was a God, little g and uh, indefinite article a stuck in there. Okay? Now, whole tomes have been written about this issue uh, of the accurate translation of John 1.1. And, and I can't really even summarize it here, let, let alone go into detail. If, if you need more information, contact me, or better yet, contact Mike Saba, who's done a lot of research in this area, because we can provide you with resources to, to really hash out the details of this. Um, Mike has actually made available at the book table for free today um, a resource that he, he put together himself, which is 101 translations of John 1, English translations of John 1.1. And so I encourage the first hundred of you that can get there to, to pick up that free copy. 
Um, but the bottom line is this. Objective Greek scholars from across the religious spectrum, okay, let me, let me unpack that phrase before I finish the claim. Greek scholars from across the, the religious spectrum means it doesn't matter whether these Greek scholars affirm the authority or the inspiration or the inerrancy of scripture. Um, doesn't matter whether they're conservative Christians, liberal Christians, agnostics, atheists, or whatever. The only qualification is that they have to be objective. And by that I mean they go to the Greek seeking to understand what it says as opposed to going to the Greek and trying to make it say something that's palatable to their way of thinking, okay? Objective Greek scholars from across the religious spectrum are virtually unanimous in acknowledging that the anti-Trinitarian alternatives that have been proposed do not do justice to the Greek, and that the historical Christian understanding of this passage is accurate with respect to the Greek, okay? According to columnist Dave Barry, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who do not. Um, <clears throat> likewise, according to the Bible, there's two kinds of people in the world. Uh, Jesus refers to them at one point as the sheep and the goats. There are those who will be reconciled to God their maker and receive new, abundant, and eternal life. And then there are those who will go to the grave and, and face eternity in rejection of God their creator. For the authors of the New Testament generally, and for the, the Apostle John in particular, denial of his status as the God-man, denial of Jesus' status as the God-man, is equivalent to rejecting the one true God. And so the, the second point of, of this apologetic moment is simply this, that <clears throat> attempts to justify uh, denial of Jesus as the God-man that appeal to supposed errors in either the transmission or the translation of John 1.1 are illegitimate and unsuccessful. And with that, I'll relinquish the sacred bar stool to your pastor and mine. Here's Ken. So that's, uh, that's the first of many apologetics moments. That'll be kind of fun. Um, so I'm a documentary junkie, and I've got this cool new Blu-ray thing where I can stream right off of Netflix. So I'm now actually um, clinical in my documentary junkie status. Uh, so we have a young baby. Uh, the fourth one doesn't go to bed till late, so I have you know, documentaries every night and stuff like that. So I was watching recently a documentary entitled um, The History of Beer in America. And it was really fascinating, um, this little piece of it. But uh, we all know there was an era called Prohibition where um, alcohol sales in America and, and the manufacture of alcohol in America was outlawed. And that's when Al Capone kind of came on the scene and the whole mob thing started going. It was really kind of an interesting time in history. Um, you know, Kevin Costner did a movie about that. If you don't like history and you just want to watch the movie version. Um, but so on the end, the tail end of Prohibition, what happened was the Great Depression had come on America, and, and, uh, you know, and everybody was just kind of wiped out financially and everything else. And so um, August Bush, um, August Bush, August Bush, whatever, the, the son of um, 
the original guy, Adolphus Bush, I think, or Anheuser-Busch would be the, the original guy. So it's the son of, I think, Anheuser-Busch, and then it was Adolphus Bush, but August Bush, okay, um, wrote this letter to the American people. He wrote an open letter to the American people, sent a copy to every congressman, every senator, and then put it in every major um, periodical in the states, like, uh, you know, in the, in the New York Times, in Los Angeles, what, all that kind of stuff, um, and open letter to the American public. And he argued a case that we need to repeal prohibition because it will create, um, you know, a million jobs um, because you're talking about the distribution, so railway workers and things like this. Um, you know, all the way down to the pubs, and, and it would roll back the millions of dollars being spent trying to fight prohibition, and on and on and on. So he, he basically builds this logical case for the repeal of prohibition, and a lot of people, I think it was like 1931, 32, he writes this letter, and it was Roosevelt about a year, year and a half after that, who got Congress to repeal prohibition. And a bunch of people say, you know what, um, Bush's letter was was a part of getting the American public to change their opinion and really be against prohibition. Um, so it's kind of just, I was, I was loving that little, like, moment, you know, um, in history, Bush writing this letter to B-U-S-C-H, um, writing this letter to the American people and doing this. Um, but August Bush knew his audience. It's basically what I took away from it. He, he was like, he wanted to make beer, and uh, everyone was poor, and everyone was wondering, you know, how are we going to generate jobs, how are we going to generate revenue, and he wrote a letter to all those people speaking their language to try and argue a point that he believed in. Does that make sense? So the gospel of John here is an interesting thing because John the Apostle writes an open letter to a region of people, uh, and his letter, of course, just, you know, expands beyond that, but he writes this letter to a region of people understanding them and what they're going through and where they're at and what their basic ideas are, and he speaks their language. I mean, it's just kind of a basic principle that way. So John kind of hung out for the latter part of his life. There's a map. He hung out kind of the bottom left over here in Ephesus. And Ephesus was kind of like a church planting city, you know, and kind of was a part of birthing a bunch of other churches in that area. And if you kind of draw a circle around the bottom left quadrant, that's really where the seven churches are that he writes to again in the, the letter of Revelation. Uh, the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. And so these are the churches that John knows intimately. These are the churches that he's been around, that he's traveled at. He's in some sense maybe helped start. And when he writes his gospel, these are the kinds of people that he knows intimately, and he writes to them. Now the interesting thing about this area is if you go across the, the sea right there, this is kind of Persia, in, in some sense modern-day Turkey and all this, but it's right across from Greece. And this is where a lot of the pre-Socratic um, philosophers were. Pre-Socratic means, you know, before Socrates, and he's kind of the, the line, you know, that, that people draw on the sand. And so this is hundreds of years before Christ, but a lot of the pre-Socratic philosophers come from here. And a, a particular guy actually came from Ephesus, and his name was Heraclitus. And Heraclitus had this, this doctrine of the Lagos. And the Lagos was what he basically called the divine ordering principle. So the Lagos was the thing that kind of was over the divine ordering kind of creative principle of the world of creation. Does that make sense? 
Okay? So this is in the, the heads of the people that John's writing to. Um, they understand this idea of the Logos kind of creating it. And he basically, John, takes some Jewish ideas of the Logos with the ideas, the, the kind of Greek ideas that this region would have. And he writes, he begins kind of John 1.1. He's writing at those people. And John 1.1, when it begins, says this. And Rick read it, but it says John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word there for word is logos. Okay? Um, word, statement, message. And in Heraclitus's sense, a broader ordering principle um, of the world. And so in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. So what John is doing is he's writing to his audience. He knows what there's, what, what's kind of in their heads. And he's saying, look, you've got to understand, Jesus, this man, was with God. So in Genesis, it's interesting, right before they make men, um, it says, let us make man in our image. And the us is who? It's, it's the persons of the Trinity. Let us, kind of this community of, of God or whatever, let us make man in our image. And what John is saying is, hey, at the center of this thing, um, outside of time and space, God that created is this second person of the Trinity. The one who's the creative, divine, ordering principle that, that, that holds creation together, we see in Paul's letters and other letters. And this, this second person of the Trinity was with God and was God. And then he's going to go on and say, and this Lagos came... In, in the flesh, the incarnation took on flesh. And so in the beginning was God, and the Logos was with God and was also God. And that Logos that holds the world together in the creative ordering principle came to us. Okay, this is how he begins his gospel. And the idea there is that um, Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, God in the flesh, is authentic. It's his point. This isn't a counterfeit. It's not a representation like a mirror image. He's saying this is authentic. And you understand that when you have like money that's a counterfeit. It doesn't matter if it looks somewhat like, right? If it's not authentic, it doesn't really have value. And uh, in fall, I thought a lot about this. It's really interesting. I, I didn't set out to think about this. But I'd been watching this show, um, America's Got Talent. Okay. <laughs> Uh, America's Got Talent, it's the one where David Hasselhoff is one of the judges, which is like a crazy oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp. Um, David Hasselhoff, you've got talent. I mean, it, it's just oxymoron, right? But there, I mean, it was the worst show I've ever seen. I had no idea where they got these people. I'm like, goodness, like Antioch could, has more talent than this national show, right? And so there was this Britney Spears impersonator that came out. And was lip syncing and dancing, and I'm watching this, and I was like telling Tamara, I was like, man, that's just a horrible Britney Spears impersonator. It looks like a dude, right? And, you know, Tamara's just not even paying attention to me. She's working hard. I'm watching TV. You know, important, important stuff, David Hasselhoff. And so the, the act gets done, and the person kind of comes in front of the stage, and they have the moderator that interviews or whatever. And I'm just like, what a horrible Britney Spears impersonator. It looks like a dude, you know? Sure enough, it was a dude. <laughs> and I was just like, you got to be kidding me. So this guy, this guy had just goofed around, you know, when he was 19 or something. 
and loved Britney, Britney Spears so much and thought, wow, I can kind of dance like that. And then started for the next two years with makeup and surgery or whatever, turned himself into a copy of Britney Spears. And I mean, it just blew my mind. And, uh, and I just thought to my, you know, I went from that, like this horrible copy of Britney Spears, and then I started thinking about like all the Elvis impersonators, you know? And I just started thinking, you know what? Nobody respects an impersonator. Like nobody respects the person that makes their whole life around copying something else. And why do we not respect that? We don't respect it because it's the, it's the height of inauthenticity. You know, even if you're like not really good at being real or, you know, who you really are, you're at least trying, you know. Um, but if you make your whole life about not even trying to be yourself but trying to be like someone else, it's completely inauthentic. We don't respect that at all. And in fact, the opposite, when something really is the genuine thing and it's 100% authentic and real, then we value that and we get behind that. Does that make sense? John starts his gospel and, and he's trying to make a point real quickly. I'm about to tell you the story of Jesus and this story is important because Jesus is authentic. There's a lot of great religious figures out there. There's a lot of teachers out there. There's a lot of leaders out there. There's Caesars who are calling themselves um, so-called sons of God or whatever. I'm not talking about somebody like that. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth who is authentically God come down to visit us in the incarnation. This is a huge deal. And it's just important for John to kind of get that out. Does that make sense? You know, why, uh, why does this really have importance to us? It, well, I've kind of shared this analogy before, but I'm going to put it in the context of a story because when I was in grad school, I had a buddy from New York State, from uh, Buffalo. He was one of the most amazing philosophical minds I'd run across. He was all, all philosophy, like no anything else. Like he couldn't do his own laundry. He would get lost finding his own home. But, man, if you talked philosophy with this guy, like, he was off the chart. Um, but he was, uh, he looked like uh, Al Pacino, too, with, like, a younger version of him. Um, but he was, uh, he was one of my best buddies, and he had a sister from, you know, New York as well. And his sister didn't want really anything to do with Christianity. And even though her brother was, like, the smartest guy ever, she wouldn't listen to him talk about it at all because that whole, she was the older sister. You know how that works? I have an older sister. Um, so anyways, I picked her up from the airport one time trying to help him out, and all of a sudden she started asking me questions. It was really strange because I'm not her brother, so all of a sudden she's willing to ask me questions. And, and so we're in L.A., picked her up at L.A. airport, and we're driving. We ended up sitting in the car when we got back to um, these apartments where she was going to be staying, just talking for like an hour. But it was amazing. I used this, this illustration from C.S. Lewis with her, and I was, she was like, why does it matter who Jesus is, you know? I just care about God, and she was kind of agnostic, and all religions are, are cool, and it's kind of a fun thing that way. I, you know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't really matter, shouldn't really matter. How is he important? And I kind of said, well, you know, C.S. Lewis has an excellent thing in his autobiography where he kind of writes in the footnotes about seeing it as um, being in the play Hamlet. And his frustration, C.S. Lewis, when he was an agnostic was, you know what, I'm trapped in this play, call it Hamlet, 
And, and there's just no way to know Shakespeare, the author, because you have a finite perspective, and you can't get grounds from which to kind of look on, on what's really going on with Shakespeare writing the play. You're kind of trapped with this narrow perspective. And he says, you know what, we, there might be a God, there might, like there might be a Shakespeare, but our ability to know him would just be so limited. And C.S. Lewis kind of despaired of that, and so he was an agnostic, which means I, I can't know. The, the alpha there is a negator, and the word gnosis with a G means knowledge, so I, I believe that we can't know. Does that make sense? Uh, atheism is the same thing, a negator with the word theism or theos with God, so it's like there is no God. This view is there cannot be really concrete knowledge about God, okay, agnostic. And uh, Lewis says, you know, that's just where we're stuck. We're like in the play Hamlet, and we can't know Shakespeare. And then like a chapter later, he writes about how when he came to be a Christian or a theist, okay, that C.S. Lewis saw that analogy a different way. And he's like, you know what? If Shakespeare, you know, wrote himself into the play Hamlet, so there was a character called Shakespeare and had the exact representation, the exact essence, the same DNA, the same personality, was the same substance in some sense as the Shakespeare who was writing the play, so that, that it's authentic that way, then Hamlet could interact with Shakespeare the character and know, by proxy, Shakespeare the author. Does that make sense? And he was like, man, now I all, all of a sudden understood the whole value of the incarnation. That if God was going to talk to us, he could do it through nature. He could do it through prophets. He could do it through a bunch of different ways. But if we were really going to know him, he would have to write himself into the story. Does that make sense? And then through that character, we could know him. And so I shared this story with this, this gal, and she was really intrigued. And I said, so Jesus isn't just a religious figure. He is the person by which we know God. Um, John 14, if you turn to it real quick. Listen to what Jesus says concerning himself. So John uh, 14. And he's talking to Philip here, and, and he's just come off of kind of the famous uh, I am the way and the truth and the life statement. But he says in verse 9, we'll just pick it up there. He says this, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, well, I'm going to hit on that word among later, so just kind of file it away. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And he goes on, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. And if you don't believe me, my word, that I'm credible, that I have good character, that I'm trustworthy, then believe the miracles, which should be uh, something that substantiates my claim. Okay? I am Shakespeare, and I am one and the same with Shakespeare, the author. I am written into this play. Believe me that we're the same. Does that make sense? So I share this with this gal, and, um, and she got really angry. And I'm like, why are you angry? She goes, if you're saying that Jesus is necessarily in this line of me knowing God, I really have a problem with that. Why do you have a problem with that? She goes, because I'm a feminist. And, um, and, and she was radical, too. She, uh, she used to put um, colored uh, 
cellophane around water bottles because the light would come in and energize the water in different ways. So yellow would make happy water and blue would make sad water. And then she'd drink it that way. And here's the funny thing. I tried it. I, I mean, I actually think it works. Um, <laughs> I'm a, it's a little new agey, and I'm not allowed to, like, officially maybe believe that. But I, I think I, when I did it, I made happy water. It just it was, it was different. So anyways, but <laughs> you're gonna go, you need to go try it. Um, in the winter, it would be good. But the, uh, she just was radically committed to feminism. And, and so she had a problem, and she said, that just means that I stand in the line of one more patriarchal thing where I'm having to be dominated by a masculine figure that way. And I just said, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, what does gender have to do with this? And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, the whole reason you're a feminist, right, is because there's examples of gender being the thing that determines value rather than character or ability, right? And she says, yeah. And I said, well, you're doing the same thing in reverse now to Jesus. You're saying, I'm not going to evaluate him by his character or his uh, validity or by his skill or by any other kind of feature. I'm just going to determine him by his gender, and she said, okay, well, that, that sounds like a bunch of fancy mumbo-jumbo. You sound like my brother. Um, and I said, no, let me, let me put it this way. And so I, I misquoted, whenever I try and do things from memory, I, I'm not a good memory guy that way, but I misquoted Philippians to her, I'm sure, but I'll read it to you. Um, but in Philippians, listen to what Paul says. And he kind of sums up what we see in the Gospels about Jesus. But it says this, uh, your attitude, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' attitude? Well, who being in very nature God, okay, the word was with God and the word was God, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then it kind of goes on. So I said to her, I said, you know, the picture we have of Jesus is not one of a domineering patriarchal figure. We have one of somebody who radically loves and cares and empathizes and sacrifices and is willing to just hold people up and serve them and not take any glory for himself because he wants to glorify the Father. So can't you see in that something that you can respect and get excited about regardless of gender because gender shouldn't play into it? Isn't that what your feminism teaches you? And so she kind of was intrigued by that. Um, and I just, and then I, I threw out a Gandhi quote, and that sealed the deal for her. I was like, you know, Gandhi said, I, I like your Christ. It's your Christians that I don't like because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. And I said to her, maybe you're upset because what you see as Christians that are supposed to be like Christ are bad copies, bad impersonators that are not authentically living like Christ. Jesus authentically lives the same as the Father, but maybe we do a bad job authentically living like Christ. Maybe that really causes you to trip up, but if we just look at Jesus, who stands between you and God, you can know God through Jesus. You can see the love of the maker of the world, the universe of you yourself, who knew you before you were even born. That God, you can know him through Jesus. That guy is somebody that you can get excited about. 
regardless of, of the people that are supposed to reflect him well. And, uh, and so it matters if it's authentic. It matters that he is the representation of God because then it stands kind of in front of us. Does that make sense? Um, uh, let me switch gears a little bit, but it's kind of the same thing. My, my favorite view of, of Christ came from um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the idea is there's a lot of Christological controversies and and, um, and Rick shared one of them, you know, the whole Aryan thing that Jesus wasn't really with God and wasn't really God. It was, he was just a great guy that kind of got baptized to be an even greater guy. And it's called the Aryan kind of view of Christ, and it's a heresy. It's, it's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what Jesus taught about himself. But there's a lot of different things or questions or ways of looking at Jesus as we come to it. The question is, what do we make of Jesus? And so our minds race and we gather data and we're trying to assess and determine what we think of Jesus. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay. And so when I was in seminary, I was in this world of, you know, what do we make of Jesus? And how does he, how is he God and man? And all these other kinds of questions. And, and, and my mind's running this way. And then I, I saw this little book one time in a bookstore and I'd never seen it before and never seen it since. And it was a book called Christ the Center. And it was a, a copy of, taken from all the notes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's students. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, the German theologian prior to World War II that died uh, at the end of World War II. Uh, Hitler ordered him hanged. Um, so his lectures before, right on the, the eve of World War II, to his students in kind of this underground seminary on Christology. So he's lecturing on who Christ is and, and what we're supposed to make of him. And... You know, they, took, they had all these different students with the notes and stuff like that, and they were able to piece together kind of this book called Christ the Center. And I sat down and I read it in one sitting. It was like the meatiest book ever, but I, I read it in one sitting because I was absolutely fascinated, right? And what Bonhoeffer said was, Bonhoeffer said, we have the completely wrong starting point. That where we start with Christology is always in the wrong place. We start with questions such as, how do you get God and man in the same person two natures. Uh, was he really God pre-existent or did he come into existence? Did he have the, the, you know, om, uh, the characteristics of God, omnipresent and omniscience and stuff like that? Did he still have those or did he somehow not have those when he was Jesus? Because if he didn't have those, then what is he really God? Because by, by definition, if you're God, shouldn't you have characteristics of God? You know, I mean, you have all these questions, and Bonhoeffer says, starting with those questions is the completely wrong starting point. Why? Why would that be the wrong starting point? And Bonhoeffer says this. He says, we make the mistake of sitting in judgment trying to determine who Christ is the way a person would sit over a little thing that we're trying to dissect or, or looking um, through a, a little magnifying lens in an ant and trying to evaluate it and think of uh, what we're going to make of it, you know, what our ideas are and, and how we see it. Does that make sense? He says, we start from this perspective, and when we start there, we can never stop because we've made it smaller than us, and whatever conclusions we come to, it's going to be on how it's pieced together, but we're not going to be able to change the fact that we've made it small. Does that make sense? Okay, so he said the problem is, is that Jesus is the divine ordering principle, the Logos, with a capital L, okay, and that we too have this Logos, this divine kind of ordering principle. We were made in the image of God, and when we were put in the garden in Genesis 1, 
what's our job? Our job is to name the animals and, and kind of to sit there and to caretake for it and to make decisions and judgments and to create and to figure things out and to be rational. It's the way we were made. Every movie you see, you draw conclusions from. You have opinions, whether you like it, whether you don't, whether it's good acting, good directing, good filming. Um, watching someone walk in front of you, you're going to have opinions of what they're wearing, how they do their hair. We cannot not have opinions because we've got this little logos at work judging and determining and analyzing. Does that make sense? And so we've got this little guy going with our little L, logos. And so Bonhoeffer's saying if we start with the magnifying lens here and try and look at Jesus and make him so small, Jesus is up here. And we can never get back to the starting point. So he uses an analogy to try and... Uh, from Scripture to try and drive his point home. Jesus goes in in Luke 7 to the Pharisees' home. He goes in, he sits down, the Pharisees leaning back, and he's got his, he's got his, his boys with him, and he's the top dog, so he's going to ask tough questions and determine what he thinks about this guy that's now uh, a rabbi going around teaching, right? And so he's reclining back, and he's asking these questions and being all theological of Jesus and stuff like that. And then this prostitute comes into the house, walks straight to Jesus, gets down at his feet, is crying over his feet, starts like wiping it with her hair and stuff like that, or tears. Um, and it's this really interesting scene. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's an interesting scene. And the Pharisee guy, because he's got his little logos at work, um, and he thinks he's something big when he's really not, he, he's like, you know what? If this guy was a prophet and had knowledge, he would know that that's a prostitute. Here, let's read it, because it's got a funny line in it. Um, Luke 7, if you can turn there quick. Um, if not, I'll read it. But So listen to what, listen to what he says. Um, the Pharisee said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so this is uh, chapter 7, verse 39, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I love that little line. Because I think we do it all the time, don't we? You know, just look at people. You know, you're a sinner. Um, you're bad. You know, what you do is bad. And we kind of like just, you know, pierce people with our eyes. And our little logos is at work, working overtime, judging, analyzing, critiquing, evaluating, right? Categorizing, black and white. And this guy does it. <laughs> Jesus is a sinner. And Jesus is like, man, you know, I mean, it's amazing that Jesus was patient. I wouldn't have been patient. I would have just started every comment to... Everybody I talked to with, you're an idiot. And then, and then like, from there. But Jesus is ridiculously patient, and, and he says to this guy, Hey, look, I came in, and you didn't even wash my feet the way it would have been. Like, for us to offer somebody a drink, like, just to be hospitable, and that culture would have just been like, Hey, you're into my house. It's my house. Sweet. Let me just, we got a bucket here. Let me just wash the dust off your sandaled feet, whatever. And it's just like hospitality, right? And Jesus is like, you didn't even respect me enough to be hospitable. Offer me a drink of water. She came in, fell right at my feet, and like worshipped me and revered me. Okay, who's, who's seeing me more accurately? Who's getting it right here, you or her? And what Bonhoeffer uses that example to say is, the Pharisee was playing this game. And the gal comes in, and she sees Jesus and, and is in awe of him and falls at his feet and, in a sense, worships him. And she starts at the right place, says Bonhoeffer. 
the right place to think about Christ is to realize how big he is and how worthy of our respect he is and to be in awe of him, to reverence him, and then to move outward and say, now help me understand more about you, Jesus. But we've got to get the bigness part first rather than engage in the little logos and critiquing first. And so Bonhoeffer uses that example. Does that make sense? If I were to say Billy Graham is coming to Antioch and he's going to teach on a Sunday morning, you would come in, you would sit down, and you would not be engaging your little, well, I'm going to see what I think of this guy. You would automatically give him respect because of who he is, and you'd be excited. I get to hear Billy Graham. Now, if I put Kip up here, okay, you would come in, look at you, and no, I'm just kidding. But, but also, anyone that comes up here that you haven't heard preach before, or that, that's the youth pastor, or whatever, you would all of a sudden say, you know what, um, we'll see. We'll see how this goes. You know, and you're all fired up and ready to critique and to analyze and to determine what your opinions are of that person. So you see what's going on here is we know this naturally, how we respond to things. And if we automatically see something as big, we give it respect and then we go from there. If we don't understand something or it's new to us, we critique it and go from there. And what Bonhoeffer's saying is, we're never going to understand Christ rightly if we don't see him as big first and then move outward. We have to be in awe. We have to reverence. We have to respect him. He is God down here in the play with us. So John starts his book, John 1.1, and says, Jesus, let me help you understand this, is the divine ordering principle. He's the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Now I'm going to move on and talk to you a lot about Jesus, but let's just, let's just get that clear. He's the real deal. He's authentic. He belongs in front of you where you're reverencing him and giving him respect, not just as some guy that you're going to critique and analyze. So that's the first thing, and then there's a second thing here. Turn to John, we've got it on the screen too, but John 1.14. So the first thing is Jesus is authentic. He's the real thing. Okay? And it goes on in John 1.14, it says this, The Word became flesh. And this is important, like he hits another one of the Christological controversies. There's a view called uh, docetism, and, and it comes from the Greek, um, uh, dikeo. So, um, this basically means to seem or appear. And the Greeks had this idea, that the audience, again, that he's writing to, they had this idea that spirit was pure, like the, the immaterial, the, the spiritual things are pure, but anything that takes on flesh, corporal matter, like the, the visible things, the non-spiritual things, that that stuff was evil. So there's no way that God, the, the pure God that's good, could actually take on flesh because it just was like a category fallacy. It couldn't happen. So the docetists believed that, that Jesus came and like floated through life. And kind of like was a vision. But he didn't really take on flesh or become human like us. I mean, he still kind of remained spiritual. Uh, he appeared to be flesh, but he wasn't really flesh. Okay? And listen to what John says. The word became flesh. The, just the sum total of it, just like you and me. He became a person, took on flesh. He didn't just seem or appear. 
He was actually here and it was real. And he took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word there, dwelling, literally means to set up a tent, to, to, to pitch a tent. And it's a tabernacling in, in the sense of the Old Testament to, to, in the middle of the community, establish the tent. Okay? And what John is saying, Jesus comes right in amongst us, and, and now he's going to dwell with us like, like pitching a tent, like tabernacle in the middle of the community. Now, why is that a big deal? In the Old Testament, the Israelites come out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and God has them build a tabernacle, a tent. And God dwells in that tent, and God is now with his people. And so, when they're spo- he's now the leader, basically, at the center, is, is the whole idea. I'm not far off from my people, and you're alone. I'm now right here in the middle with you, leading you. And so when it's time to go, at night there'll be a pillar of fire. In the daytime, there's like a cloud that'll move. But when I go, you, you go. When I stop, you stop. I'm in the center. I'm the guy that's driving this thing now. You follow me. Right? So you have, you have a decision to make. The only decision you have, it's not like the infinite number of possibilities. Should I go here, go there? Should I do this, not do this? You have one decision to make. Am I going to not follow or am I going to follow the God that's in the middle of his people and leading his people? That's the one question. Now, what John says is, now, okay, that is gone. The glory of God is gone. God being with his people is gone. But then Jesus came, set up the tabernacle, and dwelt with us again. What does that mean? It means when Jesus says to do something, it's like the pillar of fire going or the cloud going. When Jesus said to the disciples, come follow me, he's saying, I'm at the center, okay, and now you're going to be around me, and I am going to lead, and you have only one decision to make here. Are you going to follow, or are you, are you not going to follow? So it's authentic. Jesus, in verse 1, is authentic, and that's cool because it's like, man, that guy is the representation of God totally, 100%. Part 2 Jesus is with us, which means we have to submit to him. He's in the middle. He's the one that's going to lead. We choose whether to follow Christ or not follow Christ. He has the authority, and now he's claiming that he's going to lead. So what are we going to do? That's a big thing because you know what? Most people I talk to, and even in my own life, we get caught up in analyzing who Jesus is. And it's like sitting and, uh, like as spectators or on the sidelines observing kind of a game going on and evaluating as we go. But the fact that he is dwelling and came and tabernacled as God means that we can't sit on the sidelines. When he looks at you and says, come follow me, you, you can't ignore that call. The problem with Christians not looking like Christ Gandhi's whole quote is because we don't realize there is a decision and there's a line and it's like our whole life will go one way based on one decision, our whole life will go another way based on another decision, but we can't put off that decision. Either we submit and reverence Christ and then follow him 
or we don't, and we choose to stay in control of our own lives. And in, in America, we get to be Christians in our ideas. Jesus forced the issue and says, you get to be a Christian in the sense of whether you're following me or not. There is no neutral place to kind of stand and just evaluate what's going on. So it's interesting, the, uh, the name for Christians early on, the first name for them, was Followers of the Way. It's a sweet name, right? We should name a church Followers of the Way. It sound really cultish, right? <laughs> but the original name for Jesus' followers was Followers of the Way. So if I was to ask you whether you're a Christian, you'd say, Sure, I believe in Jesus. Let's take it one step further back and let me ask you the original question. Are you a follower of the way? The way being a reference to Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the question is, are you a follower of God who's now dwelling amongst us, tabernacling with his people, claiming that authority as king and as God and as Lord? And, and are you following him and submitting to that, which means you're rejecting all else that is not of Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? All of a sudden it gets a little bit more dicey. Because you're all sitting out there with things that you want to just keep in this neutral area that nobody evaluates. Attitudes, beliefs, decisions, habits, addictions. Um, some of you have a dream that you're supposed to chase, but it scares you to death and you want to hide from it. Others of you have a dream that's dying and you need to let go of it, and that just makes you ridiculously sad. Others of you are looking at life and are so scared to death, or you have relational conflict and you can't see your way out of it, or you just, whatever it is, you come in here with baggage, and those things, the things of your life, need to be seen in the light of who Christ is, and that you, with all that mess, have to follow, and in doing so, he's going to lighten that load, he promises. Or you take all this mess and say, I just don't have the energy to do these radical things that Christ would call us to. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to choose to go this way. And you reject the way or Christ or the representation, the authentic one. So the question this morning is really for Antioch Church. We're here as Antioch Church. Are we here just in a lazy way as Christians? Or are we here as followers of the one true way? coming in in awe of Christ and looking to know more, but we're underneath and we're reverencing and we're worshiping? Or do we come in and this is just a routine or something that we go through or something that we like to intellectually wrestle with? Uh, the band's going to come up and we're going to take the offering in just a second, but I'd like, to, I'd like to just read a psalm kind of as the closing prayer. So you can go ahead and bow your heads or close your eyes while I try and find it. And I love the Psalms because it articulates a lot of our experience. And I think it does an amazing job of taking our felt experience back to God, to the throne of God, and saying, um, I want you in my life. So as we're reading this, maybe we can identify with this and just say, man, life is tough, but I want God in my life. I don't want to stand over God looking at him through a microscope thinking that he's an ant. Let's read. This is out of Psalm 69. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood engulf, engulfs me. I am a, wor- a worn out calling for help and my throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head and many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. And may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. For zeal for the house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am a song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. God, may you just answer the heart cries that are so deep within us for a God, because we don't want to lead our own lives. We think we might, but we don't. And help just take away the doubts and the uncertainty that there is nothing authentic, that we're groping in the dark. Help us see and real, realize and understand and have that be affirmed in us, that we can grab hold of you in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we can let go and follow, and that that really will lighten our load. This is just not some grand idea that we're making up, but that there's truth and it's reality and that our faith is not in vain. God, just confirm in us. We pray this in Christ's name.